Well, again, if you were not with us last week, last week we began a, a series on doctrine, a series called What We Believe. And we want to kind of teach through the basic truths of the Christian faith. And I understand that if you're not familiar with doctrine, if you, if you don't really know what the study of Scripture looks like, it might be hard to picture that. And so I said, well, maybe it's helpful to picture it in terms of, of studying a blueprint of the Bible. But when we're talking about blueprints, I think on some level it can seem a little bit abstract. And so I finished last week by saying it's important to realize that especially in the difficult times, in the hard times, you know, when the waters rise against the, the theological house, you could say, when the wind blows on that house, when the earth shakes, that's exactly when you, when you really need to understand that your house has to be built on the solid foundation that is Jesus Christ. And so I think it's important at this time to realize that, that what we do here is not just studying doctrine, but we are anchoring ourselves in the truth of God's Word. A series like this is not ultimately intended to fill our heads, but to ground our hearts in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so I hope we remember that again tonight. Now I also mentioned, for those of you who weren't here last week, I mentioned that we are studying kind of as our textbook, if you want to call it that, our document. Uh, is the Belgic Confession, a document written about the 16th century which walks through the doctrines of the Christian faith. And it, one of the things that I think is, is important to, to recognize about that is that you have a document that is in the ballpark of 500 years old. And so one of the obvious questions that I was asked last week uh, was, is it still relevant? And I don't remember exactly how I responded, but I think it was Perhaps something along the lines of saying, well, yes, it's 500 years old, but the Bible hasn't changed. You know, and the truth of God's Word hasn't changed. And so I think it's still relevant. But as I thought about that over the past week, I, I think I, I recognize that there are some things that have changed. I think we should probably be honest about those things uh, tonight as well. One of them, for example, is I think how people view the authority of Scripture has changed. So back at the time of the 16th century, I think you could argue that by and large, the, the, the teaching uh, of the Scriptures through the church was, was largely uh, accepted. That, was, that wasn't a hugely debated point. That's not the case today. I was reading a study, I want to share it tonight, I was reading a study by the Canadian Bible Engagement Study. It was done by a group called Vision Critical, uh, which was part of an Angus Reid forum in 2014. Just a couple of statistics that they shared. 64% of Canadians think the scriptures of all major world religions teach essentially the same thing. 69% of Canadians think the Bible has irreconcilable contradictions. And only 18% of Canadians strongly agree that the Bible is the Word of God. So I think it's fair to say that the way that people look at the authority and the teaching of the Bible has changed. I think another thing that's changed is the way that people view God and, and the belief in God. And again, I understand you have to forgive me a little bit. I have uh, not a great deal of time, and so I'm painting with broad strokes. But at the time of the 16th century, you, you could argue that most people, generally speaking, believed in God in, in, in some way, that they largely believed in God. That's, 
That's not the case today. Today, I think, you know, there is a belief in God or a belief in a higher power, but certainly there's also a, a big percentage of the population that is challenging that belief. I think of, of someone like Stephen Hawking, who's pretty well known. He was a brilliant, brilliant English scholar. He was a theoretical physicist, which I have no idea what they do, but it sounds very smart. Um, he was also a, cosmo uh, a cosmologist, a study of, of the universe, but he was most well known for uh, being an outspoken atheist. And he said this once, he said, I believe the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization that there probably is no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that, I'm extremely grateful. And many people have embraced this worldview on, on some level. It's not uncommon uh, to have people scoff at the notion of belief in God and to hear things like the fact that religion is a, is a crutch for the weak. And as I thought about those things this past week and also kind of about how we were going to lay out our series on doctrine, uh, I've decided not to begin with Article 1 of the Belgian Confession, which deals with what we believe about God and the attributes of God. But instead I want to start with Article 2 of the Belgian Confession, which deals with why we believe in God. So tonight that's where I'm starting, Article uh, 2. We're dealing with the doctrine of Scripture which is confusing for some of you because last week there were six doctrines, six rooms, I said, in the theological house, and you're like, that wasn't one of them, uh, which is fair. Um, the doctrine of Scripture is something that's kind of included under the doctrine of God. So the first 13 articles of the Belgian Confession explain the doctrine of God, and I've kind of isolated that as a, as a room within a room, the doctrine of Scripture. So here's uh, the Belgian Confession, Article 2, dealing with the question of how do we know God. How do we know that God exists? And it says we know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most beautiful book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many letters leading us to perceive clearly God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20, all these things are sufficient to convict men and leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word, as far as is necessary for us in this life to his glory and our salvation. So the basic teaching that we're going to cover tonight, if you want to kind of just picture where we're going tonight, we're going to learn about the distinction between two things, what they call general revelation and special revelation. And these are often called the, the, the two books, the two different ways in which someone can know God. And one of the clearest uh, scriptural bases that you find for these two different ways of knowing God is found in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 begins by talking about general revelation, and then it talks about the law of God, and, and it kind of talks about special revelation. So I want to read uh, the first nine verses of Psalm 19 with you. Says there, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night 
they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as I mentioned, I want to I want to just walk through in the time that we have, just walk through these two topics, general revelation and special revelation. I'm going to spend most of our time on general re- revelation, which is really of the knowledge of God. If you want to picture it, it's the knowledge of God that is available to all people in all time. Special revelation has to do, we'll talk about that, has to deal more with the, the revelation of the Son of God which is revealed through the Spirit of God, you could say, to the children of God. But I want to start with, with general revelation. I find that Sam Storms, I, I'm familiar with some of, his, uh, some of his work, and he has a definition that I think is helpful here. He explains the difference this way. He says, theologians regularly speak of general revelation and special revelation. By the former is meant that non-redemptive, and there he's, he's just talking about it's a non-saving, knowledge of God, that can be found in creation and conscience, a knowledge that is universally accessible, hence general. By the latter is meant that redemptive knowledge of God as revealed in the person of Christ, the living Word of God, and in the Bible, the written Word of God, a knowledge that is restricted to the recipients of saving grace, hence special. So one is revealed to all, and one is revealed to some. I want to walk through those two together, beginning kind of with general uh, revelation. General revelation is described in the Belgic Confession as that, um, as that revelation that is available through the creation, the preservation, and the government of the universe. And I, I love this picture. I, I'm not sure that we always stop and really appreciate the created world for what it is. But if you understand this rightly, then when you look at the created world, it's as if everything in it has the fingerprint of the creator. That's essentially what the Belgian Confession is arguing for. It's saying that everything that you see has the fingerprint of the creator on it. That's why it describes it. It says it's, it's like letters, right, that we can read. And so as you read those letters, you read a book, and the book is simply arguing for an author which is God. And this is exactly what we read in Psalm 19. I love the words of Psalm 19. I just want to reread the opening verses. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. And the question maybe some of you are asking is if, is if we live in this universe that is speaking so boldly for a Creator then how is it that someone like Stephen Hawking, who's brilliant, 
right? Brilliant in his own field. How is it that he can study the universe and, and yet not encounter the reality of a creator? Well, this is, this is something that Paul deals with in Romans 1, verse 18. He says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Paul is teaching that if you are rejecting the truth of a creator, it's not because the evidence for a creator is not there. It's because you are suppressing that, that truth. You don't want to see it. He goes on, he says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I want to suggest tonight, this is a conviction that I have, that the belief in God is one of the most logical things in the world. I really believe this. I was sharing this with the Blessings Youth Group. Some of them are going to get to see this for the second time. But I was sharing this with the Blessings Youth Group about a month ago. And I was trying to drive this point home. And so I, I used this illustration talking about my watch. I had this watch. Um, I'm not really a huge watch guy, but my brother bought it for me, so I have to wear it every once in a while. Um, he's a big watch guy. Loves watches. And when I graduated seminary, he, he bought this watch for me. And uh, one of the things about it that's kind of unique is it doesn't have a battery. So it, it just operates on the movement. When I walk, I guess it moves around and there's parts. And if, on the back of it, um, you can't see it. I pulled it up on the, on the screen. On the back of it, there's like a glass plate. So inside, you can actually see all these tiny moving parts that, that all work together somehow to make the watch tick. Anyway, I said to the youth, I said, imagine if I uh, decided to take off the back plate of the watch and to disassemble the watch, take all the, the little pieces apart. And then, I, and then I put them in my hand, right? All these individual pieces, and I put them in my hand, and then I took them, and I just, I just kind of threw them up in the air. I said to them, what, what are the odds that those pieces would somehow assemble themselves and fall back into my hand as this functioning and assembled watch? And they're like, well. I said, okay, fair. What if I did it twice? Well, so what if I did it a hundred times or, or a thousand times? What are the odds that, that this watch would, would assemble itself into a perfectly fine-tuned watch? And they said, well, it's not going to happen. And my point is simply that if we look at, at the world, the universe in which we live, and if we look at just the natural laws that you see and the way in which the earth is, is perfectly orbiting the sun, in a way that is perfectly tuned for the existence of life, I, I don't see how we can come to the conviction that there's a randomness to it, that there's a chance to it. It in and of itself just argues for a creator. And the further that you dig into creation, the more you encounter just the reality of a creator. This is particularly true when you look at the human body. I've shared this with you before, but Anthony Flew, who was um, one of the more well-known philosophers of the last hundred years, he was a guy who was an atheist for almost his entire life until the DNA evidence started to come out. 
And, and here's what Anthony Flew says. Towards the end of his life, he, he came to the conviction that there was a God. He says, I now believe there is a God. I think it, the evidence, does point to a creative intelligence almost entirely because of the DNA investigation. What I think the DNA material has done is that it has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. So general revelation, just it just calls for a creator. But Sam Storm pointed out that it's not just creation, it's also the human conscience that argues for a creator. And this is another, this is just a biblical truth. Paul in, in Romans 2, Paul in Romans 2, he says this, indeed, maybe you've heard this before, indeed when Gentiles, and he's just talking here about those who do not believe in God, he says, when, when those who do not have the law, so who, those who, who are not familiar with the commands and the instructions of God, when they do by nature the things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. He says, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. And his point, it's a, it's a point that's been made by others, is simply that when you look kind of throughout history and throughout time and different people in different places, you discover that among people groups, there are some things that are just generally recognized as right, and there are some things that are just generally recognized as being wrong. There are certain things that are recognized as good. There are other things that people just understand they are evil and wicked. And if there's some standard that seems to apply across history and across people where, where, we, where we differentiate between some things being right and some things being wrong, it suggests that there is something almost stamped on the human heart that makes that distinction. That's the reality that there is a God. Why does this matter? Why does it matter for us as a church? Well, one thing I want to impress upon you is that we need to be careful that we don't stop at general revelation. I think there are a lot of people who walk through life, they're very convinced that there is a God. And they're like, absolutely. You know, Pastor Helmer, I agree with you 100%. This all makes sense. There is a God. The point we're making is that general revelation doesn't save you. Right? We as a church, we're not deists. We don't just believe in the existence of a God. We don't stop at general revelation. No, we, we're, we're Christians because we've encountered special revelation, which has pointed us to Jesus. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on special revelation because that's really going to be our focus over the next whole bunch of weeks. But I, I just want you to understand how special revelation works. So I have, this is the best PowerPoint skills I have. You'll have to forgive me. This is me. But I think this is important to understand. Special revelation says that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, reveals the Son of God to the children of God. We're praying for people not just to come to a general understanding that there is a God. Often that's a starting point in defending the Christian faith. But our, our prayer is that through the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, that they encounter the Son of God and become children of God. Right, that's our prayer. Because in Jesus, you have the clearest picture of God. 
And that is just an amazing truth that confronts us again and again in Scripture. I'm just going to pull these up. Um, There's just all these quotes, which basically says, when you encounter Jesus, you see what God is like. This is huge in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.18, right? No one has ever seen God but one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Probably the most well-known one is John 14.9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. But you also see it in Hebrews. Right? And the author of Hebrews makes the case that in the past, this is how God spoke. He spoke through our ans- to the ancestors, through the prophets. But he goes on, and I just want to draw your attention to verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I just want to conclude by kind of putting this together. Again, we're kind of doing some introductory stuff as we get into doctrine. But this does matter, and it matters a great deal, that you understand the difference between general revelation and special revelation. And the reason why is is really to do with Jesus Christ. I said earlier, we need to be aware of what we're building our theological house on. And, And we can walk through all the rooms kind of generically, but if all we understand is that there is a theological house, you could say, that somebody has built a house, at the end, when, when, when hardship comes and when we face difficulties, that house doesn't stand. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I can, I can lay no other foundation than the one that is already laid, and that is Jesus Christ. And so what we're doing throughout this series, I think, is we are just finding different ways to bring people to the reality that they have to build their life on the solid foundation that is Jesus Christ. And that's our prayer tonight as well. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the beauty that you've given us in this world. Lord, you've left your fingerprints all around us. It's everywhere for us to see. And it is our desire that so many would see what you have done and what you have created. And it humbles us when we look at just the intricacy with which you've made things, the intricacy with which you've made the human body, the way in which you've formed and made us, Lord, it is astonishing for us to see. And in a world where we're so busy with so many things, please, Lord, please teach us to slow down and to look and to see and to appreciate what you have done. And yet we don't want to stop there. We, we don't want to stop by just understanding that you are God who has made the universe. We want, to, we want to see you as the God who has created, but as the God who also recreates. The God who creates new people with new hearts through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that this study of the Word, this study of doctrine, would not be something that is purely about us coming here to to learn new facts or to gain new information, but that it would lead us to transformation. Shaping us and and causing us to be more and more like Jesus Christ and understanding in a deeper and more beautiful way what He has done for us in Jesus Christ so that regardless of what happens, we know that our life and our souls rest secure in Jesus Christ. 
And so, Father, would you bless us as we continue to study your word, seeking to be guided by your spirit in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.